This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good, good afternoon and welcome. My name is Patrice Petro and I'm director of the Carsey Wolf Center. Today we are really pleased to welcome Isabel Sandoval to discuss her 2019 film, Lingua Franca, where she, which she stars in, wrote, produced, and directed. Lingua Franca tells the story of an undocumented trans Filipina caregiver and explores issues of sexual identity and also the dangers of being an immigrant in Trump's America. As one critic has written, and I quote, as a director, Sandoval provokes strong acting from her entire cast and composes each scene impeccably. As a writer, her story reveals the indignities trans women and immigrants face. As an, and as an actor, her interpretation of Olivia is one of the most textured performances of the year. The sublime musical score is totally exquisite and, and, and underlines Sandoval's supreme taste. Isabel Sandoval will join PhD candidate Miguel Penabella in a discussion of this fascinating film. Today's event is part, part of a larger series at our, at our center, as many of you know, spanning fall and winter quarters and entitled Subversives. The idea for the series was Miguel's, and I want to thank him for all of his creative ideas and hard work that made this series possible. I'd like to welcome Isabel Sandoval and Miguel Panabella to the screen. Thank you thanks. so much, Patrice, for the introduction. Thanks again, Patrice. Um, and thanks everyone for attending tonight's programming. Once again, my name is Miguel Panabella, and I'm joined by director, writer, actor, and editor, Isabel Sandoval. Welcome, Isabel. Thanks, Miguel. So nice to meet you, and I'm very honored and delighted to be here this afternoon. Wonderful. Um, well, the first question I had is um, regarding the film being set specifically in Trump's America, right? And his immigration policies play a very major role in this film. How does his administration inform everything from the story to the mood of Lingua Franca? Certainly. I've said before that it's not an autobiographical uh, film, although both Olivia, the main character, and I do happen to be, you know, Filipina trans women immigrants living in New York City. But when I started writing Lingo Franca around 2015, it was more of a straightforward romantic drama where Olivia becomes involved with a cisgender, cisgender man who isn't initially aware that she's trans. But halfway through writing the script was when the 2016 presidential election took place and Trump got elected. And like a lot of minorities living in the US, I felt like I was plunged into a kind of emotional and existential crisis mm -hmm. where especially during the first six months of his administration, it was akin to going through the different stages of grief in a way. And I was feeling especially vulnerable and tense and um, was feeling a lot of uncertainty about my predicament. And the mood and atmosphere of Lingo Franca is really me channeling my emotional state around that time. So that whereas before it was a romantic drama, it's now more of a romance tinged with an ease and anxiety. So the Trump administration was this definitely kind of um, a major looming presence uh, in the story. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, I like that you mentioned that, you know, you said that the film isn't necessarily autobiographical, but it is personal. And you've also mentioned before in previous interviews that you were building upon anecdotes from those that you know. So how did those lived experiences, how else did those shape the film? Yeah, I, the anecdotes that I got that inform certain scenes or certain character arcs in Lingua Franca are from good friends, actually. Uh, I have a few friends who also are in the same boat in terms of arranging, you know, green card marriages. Mm -hmm. And these are not just necessarily like Filipina, but, you know, friends from different countries, you know, in Asia and Latin America. And I also did have friends who were, who had grandparents who were suffering from dementia. And in fact, the scene, the early scene in the film between Olga who was peeling an orange in the kitchen and she calls Olivia as she's doing laundry in the basement is directly inspired by uh, an experience of a good friend of mine. So these anecdotes kind of make up a, the composite of Olivia's experience. And then I throw in also some aspects of my own personal life. I feel like the phone calls between Olivia and her mother in the film are lifted verbatim from my own conversations with my mom and I didn't even realize it until I was editing the film. So yeah, it's a combination of all those things, but they're definitely lifted from personal experience, both mine and people that I'm close with. Mm -hmm. So this screening series is themed around cinematic subversives. I chose this film and I considered it subversive for the emotional complexity of its trans characters, which is pretty unfortunately rarely depicted in mainstream cinema. Well, I was curious about what do you see as subversive in your filmmaking and how can filmmakers be subversive? Thanks for catching that and um, you know, bringing that up, Miguel, because you know, I really do think a story with a subject matter told this way is very much subversive in that based on its premise, you would expect more of a textbook social issue, melodrama, or, you know, but, and given a subject matter which touches on topical themes like immigration, the trans experience in the US and the current administration, you would expect a film that would be maybe didactic or preachy and a little loud and performatively agitated and angry. And some films, you know, do have a right to be that, but my approach is in a certain way, the opposite extreme. I'd like to think that I made a film that's patient and quiet and very nuanced and thoughtful and that I hope encourages critical thinking that way. And I also set it up in a way that narratively you would think, for instance, that it's gonna resort to typical tropes about, you know, that are common in feature films that feature trans characters where they're, especially trans women of color, where they're subjected to physical violence, but here, violence does still exist and um, happens to Olivia, but it is a more 
of a more insidious nature because it's emotional and psychological as when Alex gaslights her. And it's also not the kind of violence that is, you know, just unique to trans women, but it's something that happens in relationships where there's a power differential, you know, in terms of gender, for instance, or citizenship status. And it's aversive as well in the way that it doesn't dwell on an aspect of the trans experience that a lot of films by cisgender and male director directors tend to focus on, uh, which is the gender transition, which becomes so sensationalized. And here in the film, the story starts, you know, well after Olivia's gender transition. And we don't, I don't really make much of an issue about her being trans, you know, like the film is not about Olivia being trans. It, you know, she just happens to be trans and Filipina and an immigrant, and there's an actual story that takes place. Um, and in fact, the first act of the film is very naturalistic and immersive in that we're just observing Olivia go through her daily routine and her daily rituals, looking after Olga. Yeah, I, you've spoken before about representations of trans women in Philippine cinema specifically. I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about the context for those who might not be as familiar um, and maybe speak a little bit more about how your approach um, is different, right, compared to that. Certainly, uh, you know, growing up, and I think this has a lot to do with why and, you know, not to get too personal, like why it took me a long time to figure out and realize that I was trans, you know, and I didn't realize it until after I moved to the U.S. because growing up, the depictions of trans women in Philippine film and media is very caricaturish, you know, they're almost always the butt of jokes. And these are very, like, flat, one-dimensional depictions where the trans woman is portrayed as being a flamboyant, boy-chasing clown. And, you know, I never really, I never identified with that. Uh, even as a kid, though, I did identify with women role models, but these are women who are intelligent and um, strong-willed and headstrong as well. And I wrote Lingua Franca and especially Olivia the way I did to be a corrective to those portrayals that I saw growing up of trans women in Philippine cinema, especially in that I'd like to think that Olivia here is a layered, morally complex mm -hmm. character and that we're also seeing multiple facets of her you know she can be tender and caring but she can also be you know angry and resilient and sensual and yeah. i'm glad you brought up that sensuality because that's a good segue in my next question which is that i thought one of the most striking features of the film was just how sensual it was right you give olivia moments of sexual desire and fantasy and pleasure. 
And I've heard you refer to the term trans female gaze as a one way to describe your approach to this. How does that trans female gaze operate in your film? I, my own definition of a trans female gaze is having the trans woman be the active agent of her, you know, of, of desire, of sexual desire. I think, and not just with the trans female gaze, but, but with female gaze, you know, as a reaction to cinema in general being predominantly male gazy and that the woman, aside from her being a passive object of desire as represented by the camera and how the woman is, the female character is shot and lensed. In the film, she never really becomes an active agent, you know, and of her desire. And the two essential scenes in the film, one is a fantasy scene, which, you know, it's really about her just allowing herself and permitting herself to have this sensual fantasy. And the second more, you know, traditional, so to speak, uh, sex scene is not even just a succession of shots of body parts and naked bodies gyrating against each other. And I know that there is a kind of fixation or obsession over the trans body, uh, the female trans body in particular, but I wanted it to focus just on her face and her eyes really as Olivia slowly yields to you know, sexual pleasure as she's also processing the fact that she's becoming intimate for the first time with a man that doesn't know yet that she's trans and weighing the risk of exposing herself you know, to the potentiality of physical danger. And I think what's most affirming about that scene is that ultimately it's a scene of her thinking and of us seeing her thinking. And I think seeing a woman character think and a trans woman of color immigrant at that, that's usually deemed invisible in American cinema and to see that woman do that to think, I think it's such an assertion of selfhood and agency that, you know, I wanted to, I just thought I had to have that scene there. And in fact, in a way I can say that I wrote those two scenes first and then wrote the rest of the movie around that. What are those thoughts that are, are racing through her mind during that moment? Um, And it's actually those, that second scene, you know, that sex scene that felt very personal to me because I've certainly found myself, you know, in a situation like that before. And when I shot that scene, you know, I never really acted all that much before. Like this is my first role after my gender transition. And we shot this sex scene on the very first night of the shoot, just because I felt like, oh, I'm gonna prove, you know, prove myself and show my crew and these people that I can do this thing. So yeah, it was, 
a combination of being Olivia um, and finding herself in that situation and also being Isabel and realizing that I'm being, you know, captured in front of the camera and in a way that's very exposing and very vulnerable. Yeah, I mean, there is an intersectionality of experience here, both yours and Olivia's. Um, mm -hmm. There's the experience of diaspora, specifically of an undocumented immigrant. And how does that intersect with the experience of being a trans woman in the film? Yeah, I consider them, you know, the intersection is, I think, the notion of a peripheral existence, you know, um, living kind of outside the margins. Uh, and as a trans woman, you know, conventional, like, gender norms and as an immigrant and an undocumented immigrant being in the margins of legal you know quote unquote citizenship status and my approach to character i was actually shocked that you know people find the film to be unusually or exceptionally perceptive and cognizant of intersectionality and because but it's it came naturally to me because my approach to characters in my old films is that they're very much influenced by their milieu you know and as someone who is who does not have the privilege in terms of, you know, gender or race, for instance, I am keenly aware of the privations of that. And these, you know, matters of race and gender and citizenship, citizenship status inevitably and naturally emerge in how I write characters in situations, especially uh, for a film like Lingua Franca. Like it's not something I can't deny like a white cisgender person in their own stories. Like this is a reality that I feel most palpably, especially in the cultural environment that's being fomented and fostered by the Trump administration. Right. Um, actually, I wanted to talk about Olivia's role as an OFW specifically, like an overseas Filipino yeah. worker, for those who are not familiar. Um, her role as an OFW is pretty central, but it's something I actually don't really see discussed um, in some of those interviews. But I was curious about how her OFW identity shapes the story and what are those kinds of class issues that are at play? Yeah. I. You know, it was intentional for me to write her as an OFW and a caregiver in particular, because this is a common situation for a lot of Filipino immigrants in the US. And I feel like it gives the audience an entry point to someone like Olivia, but also goes deeper because of that. And because it's 
such a common image that we see of Filipino immigrants in the U.S., I thought that it was an opportunity for me to both dignify and ennoble that subjectivity and that experience, um, you know, in households with a caregiver and a Filipino caregiver, they're really considered, yeah, peripheral people and peripheral characters, so to speak. So that's how I think a film of Lingu Franca is radical and somehow revolutionary because it takes a character that you can easily, easily dismiss, you know, as being in the background and putting her story and her experience front of front and center and having the Caucasian cisgender characters orbit her and her story. Right. I was also thinking too of the, the, um, the title of the movie, right? Lingua Franca, mm -hmm. which refers to a common language between speakers of different native languages. Can you speak more about the significance of the title? I mean, what are the commonalities between Olivia and Alex, especially when so much of their interactions are about what's unsaid? Yeah, um, you know, Lingua Franca, of course, is the definition, dictionary definition is bridge language, but I use the title ironically in the film because as you mentioned, you know, although they talk to each other and communicate each, with each other, in English, what is most important between them is what's left unarticulated and what's left unsaid. And it's also, a cop, I think, a commentary on my own evolving aesthetic and sensibility as a director in that, with, you know, with each new film that I make, I'm becoming more of a purely visual storyteller in that it's actually in the gaps in the pauses and the silences that the characters reveal themselves most um most fully and most honestly and yeah for a film that's called Lingua Franca you know, it's not a particularly verbose or dialogue driven film especially in the, in the final stretches um, and it's not just Olivia and Alex that's um, a kind of relationship in the movie. There's also the two immigrant women at the heart of the story, Olivia and also Olga, right? Alex's grandmother. What are the yeah. parallels between those two characters? Yeah, I wanted to, besides Alex and Olivia, I wanted to make a film that centered the experience of two immigrant women in New York City and how, you know, the population of New York City is just a succession of generation of immigrants from the different places. Uh, Olivia and Olga are mere characters in that they both migrated to the U.S. at different points in their lives. Uh, and they are experienced a certain sense of displacement. Olivia's is more obvious because she is a recent immigrant who happens to be without papers, so her displacement displacement is political, while Olga's displacement is now more emotional and psychological because she's kind of untethered from her, her memory uh, as someone who is suffer suffering from dementia. And how they are, in a way, each other's lifelines in a very subtle way as this story unfolds and 
as the film, as it progresses, becomes increasingly claustrophobic because of how, you know, more strongly Olivia feels that ICE agents in a threat of deportation is closing in on her. Um, you know, in addition to kind of those immigration contexts, I also wanted to talk about the use of language, right? And I, I mm -hmm. count four different languages spoken in the film, English, Tagalog, Cebuano, and Russian. How important was it for you to have this multiplicity of languages and why? Yeah, I wanted to make a New York film that more accurately reflected my own experience of living in New York City. And especially when you leave Manhattan and go to the outer boroughs like Queens and Brooklyn. I live in Brooklyn, um, but for instance, when we think of Brooklyn, it's either uh, a Spike Lee, Spike Lee film, you know, or more recently, we mostly see the hip, uh, gentrified neighborhoods like Williamsburg as featured in Lena Dunham Scrolls on HBO. But living in Brooklyn, it's really composed, it's very heterogeneous in that it's composed of different ethnic and immigrant neighborhoods that have a distinct identity and um, characteristic to them. Like there are communities of both Orthodox Jews and Hasidic Jews, as well as Caribbean and Jamaican neighborhoods. And Brighton Beach is only a half hour train ride from where I live in Crown Heights, uh, which is one of those more gentrified neighborhoods. But when I go to Brighton Beach, I feel like I'm being whisked off to a totally different place and in some ways country and a different time period as well. And I was actually, you know, to be honest, I was inspired to set uh, the story there because James Gray, who you know, who is Russian American, set a few of his earlier films in Brighton Beach, including Two Lovers uh, with Joaquin Phoenix and Gwyneth Paltrow, about ten years ago. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask about that setting, um, Brighton mm -hmm. Beach, but then there's also another moment in the film, I believe, when. Um, she and Alex go on a date to a neighborhood in Queens, I think. Can you talk more yes. about that? Yeah, so that neighborhood in, in Queens is considered the Filipino um, neighborhood. Uh, it's called Woodside. And yeah, I mean, these are some of the details and narrative um, flourishes that I include in the film. That's also because that's also something that I do. Like I live in Brooklyn, but sometimes when I feel like having Filipino food, I go to Queens mm -hmm. to do that. And yeah, it was important for me to kind of show a Filipina immigrant and her usual haunts in a place like New York City. And I, you know, you asked about language in your earlier question, but I kind of did not address that. So I wanted to just talk about how important it was for me to open and close the film with Filipino and especially Cebuano voiceover. Um, and that, and how that, Filip that Cebuano language juxtaposed with a montage of scenes set in Brighton Beach, which are quintessentially, you know, 
American scenery. So I'm, I want to usher the audience into my film as the storyteller and telling them, you might think you're watching another American film or another New York film, but I am telling this from my own voice and my own perspective. And also, yeah, that's why I included both Russian uh, and two Filipino languages, Cebuano and Tagalog, as well as English to, to capture my own experience of living in New York City as an immigrant from the Philippines, surrounded by other immigrants. One of my um, favorite moments of the movie is the uh, poem that Olivia recites in voiceover. Yes. Can you talk about the significance of the poem? Um, where did it originate? So it was inspired by a love letter from Vladimir Nabokov to his wife, uh, Vera. And yeah, I feel like it's becoming part of my own style and pre creative and aesthetic predilections as a filmmaker. And that at first I was initially very resistant to voiceover, um, especially a narrative voiceover that just explains what's going on in the film that you can see with your own eyes. But now I feel like the way I use it in my own films, like a voiceover can be very intimate and in that it can be a window to the, the mind and the soul, not to sound very like, you know, new age of a character, especially a character who is conventionally considered voiceless, you know, or not really given the space and uh, the room to reveal themselves. And yeah, I was, I also thought it was quite uh, interesting to have, even though it's read by someone, you know, someone like Alex, he's reading a love letter addressed to his own grandmother, you know, and a woman, a septuagenarian, an octogenarian, who, who, someone who's in her 80s and experiencing dementia. And we are given a glimpse into her sensual life, you know, her inner sensual life. And for her perspective to, for the perspective to transition from hers to that of Olivia, a trans woman of color, you know, so, yeah, and I thought I thought that love letter was perfect uh, for the sensual fantasy scene that I wrote. Yeah, I really love that scene. I love the exchange of glances that Alex and Olivia share um, when they have the letter. Um, another question I had was all about um, characters consuming media. We oftentimes see them. Uh, for instance, Olivia watching the news on television or Alex listening to the news on the radio or the Joe Rogan podcast. How does media shape the politics of those characters? Yeah, I mean, as I had mentioned earlier, my characters are do not exist in a vacuum and are very much, if not a product of, they are influenced by their setting in the milieu and the things that, are ex that they're exposed to, including media. In Alex's case, uh, his the media that he listens to and that he consumes is a byproduct of his own upbringing, you know, and growing up in 
a neighborhood and a community that might be rather conservative and transphobic and you know homophobic and the company that he keeps so it makes sense for him to be listening to a you know a radio program like the Joe Rogan show and it also influences his uh how he reacts to discovering and learning that Olivia is trans for instance and Olivia as much as he, she's trying to protect herself and cocoon herself from what is going on outside it's inevitable and this is especially true for a president like Trump you know who essentially has turned his administration into a reality series you know um because that's uh that it's inevitable for someone like Olivia to be exposed to what Trump has been talking about and what he's been tweeting and yeah those little snippets of you know radio programs or tv shows that she sees uh very much are what darken or and darken her mind and her um perspective of her own situation as she becomes more paranoid about what's going to happen to her i've read before that you were influenced by slow cinema in developing this film how did slow cinema shape your work i think especially once i hit you know got to college my taste in film has just gotten less commercial and more art house and that i didn't go to film school but my own film school was getting my hands on works of world cinema you know by auteurs like uh Ingmar Bergman for instance uh Michael Haneke Wong Kar Wai and other asian auteurs like uh Edward Yang for instance where there's just patience and uh the willingness to observe characters as they're living their lives in a patient and in hurried pace and even in my own, my own films that's influenced how i cut my films because i edit my own films in that there's just something very immersive and absorbing about observing a character in their own habitat even without dialogue mm-hmm. i think that can that is that can be even more revealing about you know what a character is like and what they're thinking uh despite they're not being dialogue and just in the fact that we are seeing them be themselves and this is how it was in i think the early part of lingua franca both in olivia as she's going through her routine and even with olga you know as she is peeling that orange and that was also influenced by the cinema of chantal ackerman mm-hmm. uh, especially uh, both Jean Delmon, her masterpiece, and uh, News from Home. 
I thought about news from home a lot, uh, the opening and closing where you're, you have that voiceover and it's set to images of New York and she's communicating with her mother. Um, what yeah. was, what drew you to that in making this film? Yeah, uh, it's funny because the film had a different uh, beginning and ending and it was only in post-production while I was editing the film that I thought this ending doesn't, you know, this beginning and ending doesn't work for the film. And I talked to my producers and in, insisted that I want, you know, two additional days to uh, do a pickup shoot. And that's when we shot those, you know, montages at the beginning and ending. And I was just drawn to the dissonance between the remoteness, seeming remoteness and impersonal nature of the imagery versus how intimate and in a way um, voyeuristic and personal mm -hmm. the voiceover is. And that's also something that I cultivate in my own work, that tension, you know, and that contrast between the image and what you're hearing. Uh, like halfway through the film, if you remember, and I cut it right in between, right in the middle of the sex scene, it cuts from the sex scene to an extreme wide shot of Olivia standing in the subway. Mm -hmm. And the camera very slowly zooms in on her. And then we hear essentially their pillow talk in a very bedroom come hither voice and they're talk, you know, she and Alex are talking about a very, very intimate thing. It, it feels like we're eavesdropping on this post-coital post conversation as we're seeing her um, from afar. And I'm trying to create a mood of, yeah, that sense of, paranoia and claustrophobia as mm -hmm. the real world, the outside world slowly closes in on her. You mentioned before too that you didn't quite have a film background um, and I actually read that you, your background actually included receiving a master's in business, if I remember correctly. Yes. So what was the motivation for the switch and career paths? I've always wanted to yeah, filmmaker. Um, ever since I, you know, even as a kid, I was a creative person and my natural creative outlet was um, filmmaking in that I would not necessarily, you know, think of words on a page or a script, but I would imagine and visualize scenes that I cut together to form a film. But you know, growing up, I thought for a long time that filmmaking was not a grown-up career, you know, mm -hmm. and, you know, it's kind of hit or miss, and there are a lot of aspiring filmmakers that, you know, don't really, you know, make it, and that can be a very frustrating thing, and I thought that pursuing a business degree, and while I did pursue a business degree, I specialized in both marketing and media entertainment, and I had one foot in the door, so to speak, in the entertainment industry. And in fact, I had internships with uh, 
in the international distribution department's uh, focus features um, the year after they put up Brokeback Mountain and also um, the Weinstein Company well before, you know, uh, the big scandals and accusations of uh, the sexual abuse going on. But I, but after I finished business school a year or two later, I decided I wanted to take a, a plunge, you know, and that it, it's something I would forever regret if I didn't pursue my passion. And I did. And now three features, I am vindicated in that my choice to pursue filmmaking has, um, has paid off um, gratefully. And it's something that I'm very thankful for. Uh, as of a few months ago, after the film premiered, on Netflix in North America and was acquired by Ava DuVernay's film distribution collective, Array. I'm now being repped by uh, a major agency as a writer director. So I'm very grateful for that. Congratulations. Thank you. You've spoken too many times about your role as an auteur. And I'm curious about that thematic or stylistic through line across your three feature films. What kinds of, um, I guess, what is your auteur mark do you see in your features from Senorita to Apparition to Lingua Franca? Thematically, I, you know, John Cocteau, the French, iconic French filmmaker, once said that directors make the same movie over and over again and that we are, we constantly revisit the same themes, um, issues and perhaps unresolved conflicts from our own personal lives in the movies that we make. It's just that, you know, the more work we put out, we, our style becomes more sophisticated and elegant. And so thematically, I think my go-to theme are as women with secrets, you know, and also specifically a subset of that is women who are marginalized in a certain way, who are forced to confront very personal uh, dilemmas in their own life with, within a fraught sociopolitical setting. Uh, and this is true and consistent across my three features. My second feature apparition, which I did right before my gender transition, was about cloistered um, Catholic nuns in the Philippines in the early 70s during the height of the Marcos dictatorship. And I consider, consider them marginalized characters because when you see Filipino films that tackle martial law, they never really talk about the experience of nuns at that time or the religious women in particular. But then in 1986, when I was, you know, just very, very young, I remembered one of the very first images that I remembered was nuns marching in the streets, Filipino nuns, nuns marching in the streets, facing down military tanks and offering flowers to the soldiers. And so, you know, apparition was a fictional fictionalization of how in my mind, nuns that are pretty typically considered very docile and subservient 
in Philippine culture, how they went from point A to being, you know, actively involved in politics and militant in that in that way. Yeah. So th thematically, that's my go-to theme, and stylistically, I now I and this is after Lingua Franca. I'm now drawn to the sensuality of an image and how, and not just, you know, sensual scenes per se, but I'm intrigued and I'm interested by how I can make an image seductive, mm -hmm. you know, through colors, for instance. And yeah, I kind of experimented with that in Lingua Franca in that it's instead of some, a film that's, just grimy and gritty throughout. There are some scenes that are quite lyrical and poetic and sensual. Yeah, that's a good segue actually to some audience questions that we'll now be taking um, from the Q&A function on this webinar. So these questions have been yeah. selected by the Carsey Wolf Center staff and we'll try to get through a number of them right now. One of those questions was about um, how you worked with your director of photography to develop your distinctive color palette and your lighting design. Yes, uh, my cinematographer, uh, Isaac Banks, is amazing. Um, we, very early on, and it was actually the very first collaborative part, creative partnership I had um, with Lingo Franca. We met three years before we started shooting the film. And as the script has evolved, I also, you know, we, we talk a lot about how to, to shoot the film, but as with any independent production, as much planning as you like to do, you have to be flexible and adapt. And because there are just so many um, unknown variables and curveballs that get thrown at you. And in fact, there were a number of key locations in the film that we did not confirm until the very day before, including the slaughterhouse of all places. So yeah, it's, I gave him a few references and pegs, um, Cinema with Chantal Ackerman, Wong Kar Wai, In the Mood for Love. And yeah, uh, with those references in mind, Isaac strategized a visual design for the film and made sure that even though I'm throwing him, you know, different influences that might be, uh, radically different from each other, you know, like Wong Kar Wai and Chantal Ackerman, uh, to have the visual language be consistent and coherent, you know, from the start of the film to the finish. So much credit is definitely uh, due to Isaac. There are a few audience members too who expressed interest in the film's ending and in particular, mm -hmm. Olivia's decision to leave Alex and her job. Can you talk more about your choice to end the film as you did and maybe alternatives that you might have considered? I think you also mentioned. Yeah, yeah. I, I wrote the ending, you know, I, I wrote the part that Alex gaslit Olivia pretty late <laughs> in the screenwriting phase of the film. But when the moment that I wrote that, I could not think of any other ending to the film than the one that I decided with. And it's also, I think it's at that moment when she 
make a, a decision that would seem impractical and counterintuitive and, you know, quite frankly, stupid, you know, to some, some outsider eyes in her situation, like, why would she, you know, turn him down? And this is be, this would be an easy way out of her predicament. It's at that moment where I invite the audience to really put themselves in Olivia's shoes and think, you know, why did she decide that way? And it's also at that moment in the film that when the audience truly empathizes with her, they're gonna see her as someone who's not just a trans woman looking for love or an undocumented immigrant looking for a green card. You know, she is someone who's more complex and complicated and um, multidimensional than that. And I know that ending can be polarizing <laughs> and divisive and also confusing to some people, but I did not want to make a film that would easily and neatly resolve Olivia's dilemma, you know, in a 90-minute film so that the people, you know, the audience can feel better about her and themselves and leave her story. Because at the end of the day, even though it's a story about this specific character, you know, she, the bigger issue of immigration and trans women of color in the U.S. remains unresolved. And I wanted to make a film that haunted and lingered with people and that they continue to think of Olivia and someone like her and her and her plight long after and days after the credits have rolled. I think I read in an interview that you had done that you really um, pushed for more scenes that were in Tagalog. Like I think there was the, the scene at the church between her and her friend. Can you talk more yeah. about the importance of that? Yeah, I mean, that happened actually and that decision came in post because initially Olga's character had more of a an arc, you know, as, a, as, you, as you'd mentioned earlier, Olga is an equally important character in the film and her arc, you know, dealt more in alluding to her past as uh, someone who's experienced uh, the aftermath of the Holocaust in her home country, Ukraine. But when we shot those scenes, it didn't quite um, meet my expectations dramatically. Um, so as an editor, putting on my editor's hat, I thought this would be an opportunity to instead develop the relationship between Olivia and Trixie Moore and to highlight a relationship between two transgender Filipina women, Filipina immigrants in the States and to have those scenes set in a church because I also wanted to show apart from you know the sensual life and the inner sensual life of the Filipino trans woman, I wanted to show her spiritual life and the friendship between these two women. Uh, can you talk more about Olivia's relationship with Olga too? Uh, a few audience members were, were commenting how, how, on how touching that relationship was. What did you want to emphasize about Olivia's work as a caregiver? Um, yeah, I think 
the film is quite narratively sparse in that it doesn't really explain too much or a lot about the relationship, but I focus on essential scenes like the early one in the kitchen between them. And I think also because, you know, interestingly, by not overwriting and really spelling out those scenes, the reason why the scenes can be moving to certain viewers is that they can bring their own emotional experience to that, you know, looking after an a parent or an elderly relative who might be in the same condition. And yeah, uh, we all have families. We've all had parents who might have needed us to look after them and care for them. And that's what I try to do in that to essentially write, maybe not just an outline, but give certain character characters enough definition and enough development, but also not to overwrite them so that the audience are able to, by filling in the blanks about the relationship between characters, they're able to draw on their own memory and own personal mm -hmm. experience. There were a number of um, Filipina ex-students in attendance tonight. Um, so how do you hope that this film will impact those Filipino audiences? I hope that it emboldens and inspires people to go out there and tell your own stories. Um, you don't need to have the highest budget um, or the biggest stars, and you don't need to have, you know, include tropes, you know, and conventional bankable elements in your film just to make it feel valid and important and necessary. You know, sometimes you just have to have the audacity to believe in the validity of your own voice and your own story. Um, yeah, um, I never expected Lingua Franca to resonate with as wide um, a swath of an audience, both in the US and the Philippines and internationally as it did, because, you know, it can seem quite personal and idiosyncratic and it's not the most commercial film, but because I just wanted to tell a story that came from a place that was authentic and uncompromised and undiluted, uh, that its specificity somehow makes it universal. And finally, can you tell us anything about your upcoming projects so that we have that on our radar? Yes, uh, I am writing a pilot for a TV series for a cable network. Um, and I am putting the finishing touches on my next feature script entitled Tropical Gothic which is set in the 16th century in the Philippines about a native, this is very early on um, in the Spanish colonial regime. And it's about a native priestess who pretends to be possessed by the spirit of the dead wife of her Spanish master. 
to avenge uh, the fact that she's been dispossessed um, in the hands of the Spanish. And it has shades of Vertigo by Hitchcock. Mm -hmm. And this is an ambitious and very risky film for me because, you know, also aesthetically, I'm experimenting and trying out something new in that while a lot of my previous films are rather social realist in orientation, here I explore surrealism and magical realism. Well, great. I'm very excited for it. Um, I'm also you. very, I'm also very thankful for you for sitting down with us this evening, um, and I'm thankful for everybody else for joining us tonight. The Carsey Wolf Center uh, series on subversives it continues throughout this winter with a discussion of Salt of the Earth on the 21st, and we hope to see you again soon. Thank you so much, Miguel. Um, thank you uh, for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here tonight. Thanks again, Isabel. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.